Amen. Lord, that is our heart, that you would renew a right spirit within us. Father, we, we struggle day by day with the battle with our flesh, Lord. And Lord, only by the strength of your spirit can we be made right, can we be back in the center of your will. And we thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy toward us. Father, as we go to your word, may you be our teacher. May man decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Now, next week, Pottersfield Ministry. I know we've been talking about this for a couple of months. I know that we made, I think, around 2,000 of these invitations. So hopefully you've been praying for some people that you know and you've invited them, put one in their hand. It's not too late to do it. We have some in the back. And I want to tell you, it's literally one of the most powerful evangelistic messages I've ever seen. And not only that, it's great encouragement and exhortation for those who already know the Lord. I think I may have seen it about 15 times because as a youth pastor, we'd have them every year, sometimes twice a year. And, you know, I'm brought to the point of weeping every time. It's just very powerful. God's got His hand on it. Secondly, I want to encourage you, be praying because next Thursday morning, praise the Lord, uh, He's going to be at Monta Vista Christian School with between eight and 900 students doing it for their chapel. So be praying for next Thursday morning also that God would do a great work with uh, the students out there. Most of you know I've got two, two kids out at school out there, two more yet to go there. And, and uh, while it's a Christian school and there's, the teachers love the Lord, there's a lot of students there who don't necessarily know the Lord. And so may God's kingdom be added to. Well, that being said, Joshua chapter 10. Now to catch you up by the way of review, which you know I'm big on, and there's a reason that I am, because again, I want to make sure you understand the context, understand exactly what's happened prior to this. My heart is always somebody, if somebody walked in here for the very first time, they would understand exactly the context of the chapter. And for those of the rest of us, you need to hear it again anyway, because you forget. Amen? All right. So we're going to continue to follow the children of Israel. As we come to Joshua, we know that they were brought out of Israel by the Passover, a picture of the the cross of Christ through the shed blood of the Lamb. Again, if the lamb, blood of the Lamb was applied, then the angel of death passed over. They came out of the wilderness. They encamped at Sinai. It was there that God gave them the law. Sadly, while Moses was up getting the law, they were down at the bottom of the hill breaking it, worshiping the golden calf. Things didn't get much better because that 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march because when they got to the Jordan River to Kadesh Barnea where they were to pass over according to God's promise to them to give them the land. They saw the giants in the land and they ran away. They feared they would not enter in. Ten spies said, oh, they'll kill us. Two spies came back and said, let's go. God's promised us. One of those spies was a man by the name of Joshua. When you get to Numbers, it talks about their travels through the wilderness. And then in Deuteronomy, the law is given to the next generation in preparation for that generation that is going to go into the land of promise. Because the previous generation died away. Finally, we come to Joshua, and now they're entering in. As we talked about, they're on the outskirts. They sent spies in again, and this time, the spies saw the mighty fortress of Jericho, and yet they came back, and unlike the previous generation, they were willing to enter in. They'd already killed Sihon and Og and some of the other you know, mighty armies. God had brought victory, so now they came in. They met a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab was a... Gentile woman who was actually a lived in pagan idolatry and was a prostitute. And you know what's awesome is she got saved. 
in, in those terms, right? They didn't call them saved back then, but she put her faith in the God of Israel. And she hung the, the red cord out her window with the red windowsill marking the fact that she was a prostitute. Anybody who looked on the wall would see the cross hanging down. They come into the land, they cross over again by the miraculous work of the Lord. Deliverance out of Egypt is a picture of being delivered out of sin. The Red Sea is a picture of water baptism. Going over the Jordan is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Now we're walking in the center of God's will, and the first thing they come into contact with after passing over the, over the Jordan River is they run into Jericho, the most mighty fortress that they're going to face. And God gives them Jesus showing up in person and speaking directly to Joshua a plan that makes no sense to the world. And often what God will ask us to do to exhibit faith is something that makes no sense to the world. He didn't say, you know, shoot cannons at the wall, which they didn't have anyway, or try to scale the wall with ladders. He said, march around it and blow trumpets. Now you've got to have faith to fight your enemy with trumpets and marching around not saying a word. And you know what? For six days they saw the, the majesty in one sense of the, the walls, 25 feet tall, 20 feet thick, and as they marched around, they must have thought, there's no way we're going to win from a physical perspective. But praise God that they were obedient and when they blew their trumpets after marching around the seventh time, the walls came down. God allows us to see the giant, the giants in the land and the greatness of our foes so we might understand the greatness of our God. Well, sadly, they didn't learn because even though they had the victory, now in chapter 8, they finally go out and then this time, instead of heeding the voice of the Lord in chapter 7 and 8, what happens is they go to fight Ai. But this time they start to think, well, man, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need God's help. I mean, you know, we brought Jericho down, and, and Ai is a much smaller people, so the spies went out, they came back and said, just send a couple thousand people. We don't need the whole army. And they went up, and we know what happened. They got whipped. And they got whipped because they did not seek counsel from the Lord, it says in the text. Instead, they just trusted in themselves. Guys, we need to stay desperate for God at all times. Every single day, we must be seeking the Lord in every aspect of life. Aren't there areas, well, I'm a smart guy. Aren't there areas I can figure out on my own? Well, you can try, but it won't work out too well. Ask Joshua. Amen? And so what happened was they were defeated, and now they had to go back and fight Ai. They found out there was sin in the camp. Achan was Achan because he ended up being stoned to death because he brought back some of the spoils that he wasn't supposed to bring. And sadly, if he had just waited a few days, God sent them back into Ai, and they won the battle this time. And after winning that battle, God allowed them to keep the spoils. If he just waited on the Lord, we get ahead of God, we miss out on God's highest. So we've seen God bring victory. We've seen God do a miraculous work. And now we get to chapter 9. After the failure of pride, they were broken again. And this time they went in and won battle, the battle against Ai because they were broken of their pride. And then last week, I titled the message, The Enemy and the Spirit-Filled Believer. The enemy's thoughts toward the believer. What does the enemy want to do to you? The Bible tells us that Satan is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But as there was a huge enemy that mounted up against them, that was right in front of them, the enemy that got them was the one that came in subtly. Because the Bible tells us that Satan is also like a serpent. And if you remember from last week, these guys came up with a plan. Man, these Israelites are smoking everybody. And if we don't get on their side, we're in trouble. So the Gibeonites pretended like they were from a faraway land because they heard the word that the children of Israel were to kill everyone in Canaan. So they showed up. They had their bread old and moldy. 
And they showed up and pretended like, oh, we've been traveling a far distance. Make a covenant with us. And we know what happened. Joshua, looking at the physical perspective, made a covenant with them. And I compared this last week. It it has an application in many aspects of life, but the most glaring one to me would be in male and female relationships. Because we can look at the physical and we can be duped. Ladies, guys are liars. They will tell you anything. They will be rico suave, man, until they get married. Until they get what they want, right? They'll lie to you. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And oh, yeah, you know what? And that's why it's so important that we take our time and be patient. Guys, the same thing. You might find a woman who will tell you everything that you want to hear because she wants to be married. Or maybe a business partner that's looking for someone to come in and save his business who will lie to you and tell you everything you want to hear so you will enter into a partnership. We should not enter into a partnership. We should not move in with a roommate. And we certainly shouldn't be getting involved in a relationship if we have not sought the Lord first. Amen? Sadly, though, they did it without seeking the Lord and the consequences were heavy. Because just a few days later, they found out, oh, we were lied to. These Gibeonites are really from here. And you know what? God is a gracious God. In the midst of it, they could have struck out and killed them. But praise God that even though they had blown it, from that point forward, Joshua purposed in his heart, okay, we're going to honor God, let our yes be yes and our no be no from this point forward. And you know what? If you've gotten married to an unbeliever, or you've entered into a partnership that you cannot break because you signed a document, then what you need to do from this point forward is you need to be in that partnership as unto the Lord. Even though you entered in foolishly, even though you entered in outside of God's will, God's design from this point forward would be not that you cover one sin with another, but that you be faithful from this point forward. And this was the call that God had placed upon Joshua. And he said, okay, we've been duped. We're not going to kill the Gibeonites. We're going to cover one sin with another sin. So instead, we'll let them be with us, but they're going to serve us. They're going to be our servants. Now, praise God for the Gibeonites. Even though they were pagans and they missed God, at least they understood the point that if we don't get on Israel's side, we're in trouble. And they said, it's better for us to be servants with Israel than to be on our own. Because if we're servants in Israel's house, we'll live. But if we're outside of God's people, we're going to die. And you know what? We can learn a lot from that. It's better to be a servant in the house of God than a king anywhere else. Amen? So that brings us now to chapter 10. Again, all about the context, right? Amen? Now, while most of us have knowledge of the main miracle we're going to see in this chapter, I titled the chapter, The Sun Stood Still. Because we're going to see that happen in the chapter tonight. And while most of us have some level of knowledge of this incredible miracle, I believe that we don't fully grasp the circumstances when this miracle took place. There's two contrasting reasons why you and I as Christians go through times of difficulty. Two different reasons why. One is is an attack, a spiritual attack from the enemy. You're growing in the Lord. You're serving God. The more God uses you, the greater target you are for the enemy and the greater the opposition you will face. Remember this, opposition is an opportunity to grow or an excuse to give up. You know what, it breaks my heart. I've seen so many Christians on fire for God, seeking God with their whole heart, in love with the Lord. People at this church, and I'm just like watching them grow before my eyes. It's like a chia pet, you know, man, you go to sleep, you get back, and the thing's got hair, right? You know what, I see some Christians that just growing right in front of my eyes, 
And then you know what? The enemy sees them growing and they're starting to serve and God's using them in a mighty way and boom, here comes the opposition. And now we're being tested as by fire. And sadly, we, I see some that just grow through it. All right, that's okay. You know, I'm serving God, it's all right. My love for the Lord, where else am I going to turn? And I see others that we don't even see here anymore because they lost a job, because they went through a difficult time. All of a sudden now they back away from the Lord instead of running to Him. And you know what? That can happen in the life of the believer. But sadly, again, we see people crumble. We see some mature through difficulty and some crumble under the weight of their trials. Rather than pressing and trust God and grow spiritually, they are, again, fall away because of it. You know what happens when you test something? The depth of the commitment to God is revealed. The level of your resolve. The depth of your faith. It's been said, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. The Bible says, lay hands on no man quickly. Why? Because people can shine brightly for a short amount of time. And they can burn out. If they're doing it in the flesh. If you're doing it for the Lord, you'll endure till the end. You'll abide. You may struggle from time to time, but you'll always turn right back to the Lord. And you won't run away from God, but you'll grow with Him. But in addition to the spiritual opposition of the enemy as we walk in obedience to the Lord, there are consequences that come from disobedience. So some trials come. We're walking in obedience to the Lord. We're doing His will. Here comes a trial. Opportunity to grow. Well, sometimes it's because we've rejected God, we're outside of His will, and now we go through difficulty, the consequences of sinful behavior. So, in the midst of circumstances, we can either become hardened and blame God, or, and go deeper into sin, or we can be broken, come to the Lord with a heart of repentance, and seek restoration. Guys, when you sin, you have a choice to make. Live in it or repent. You've heard me say it many times, a sign of spiritual maturity is the length of time between when you sin and when you repent. The closer you get to the Lord, it ought to be shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter till it's nanoseconds. Do you know when you're sinning? Raise your hand. Don't you? That's a good, that means you're saved, amen? I don't really know when I'm saved. Well, you need to get saved then, amen? Because the Holy Spirit is just, you know, giving the head slap and praise God for that. But you know what? As we get saved... The more we walk with God, the more, again, that conviction is going to be heavy upon us. Now, I want to say this. While the consequences can be for two different reasons. You can be in prison because you're sold out for God. You're living in a country where it's against the law to be a Christian, and you're thrown in prison. You can also be in prison because you were drinking and driving, and you hit somebody with your car. Or you were doing drugs or drug trafficking or bezeled from your boss, or you are cheating on your taxes. Now, once you're there... You have an opportunity to serve the Lord regardless of which reason you got there. Now, I would much rather be in prison for sharing my faith. How about you? Amen? I'd much rather be in prison for being the Apostle Paul than being Charles Manson. Now, once you're there, I did prison ministry for four and a half years. Every Tuesday night, taught a Bible study in the Lancaster Federal, Federal Penitentiary in the A Yard. Lifers, all of them. No one's leaving. Time stands still in there. And you know what? There were some guys in there on fire for God. There was one guy who was the biggest guy there. He scared me half to death the first time I went. I tried to stay as far away from this guy as I could. Because he was like, he blocked out the sun. He was like 6'10", 400 pounds. And he was in the weight area like throwing you know, weights around like they were you know, pretzels. And I was like, man, I want nothing to do. And then I show up at the Bible study and there he is in the front row. I'm like, whoa guy's mean shaved head ah you know that kind of guy and you know what's awesome 
he got saved, and he was so on fire for God that he made people, I mean literally, made people come <laughs> to the Bible study. He'd come in, and there'd be like 50 people. He'd go, this isn't enough people. I'll be right back, Pastor Dave. He'd go out, come back with 20 guys going, you know. I thought, man, we need that guy at our church. That'd be great. Imagine how many invitations he'd hand out. You're coming. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, this guy was in prison because he killed seven people. But he got saved. And now God could use him. In our circumstances, in our consequences of our sin, God can still use us. Maybe you're here tonight, you've totally blown it. You're in a bad situation because of your sin. From this point forward, serve God. From this point forward, make God the priority in your life. Well, as we come to the text tonight, guess what? This miracle that God's going to do is not because they're walking in the center of God's will. It's as a result of the consequence of their sin. That's amazing to me that God would do a miracle when we're turning toward him in the middle of, of the consequence of a previous sin. Often we think the miracles come because you're just walking in the center of God's will and everything in your life is perfect and you've been walking with him and you're so on fire for God, he couldn't help but give, put a miracle on you. That's not usually what happens. God does something miraculous in spite of us, amen? And so what happens in tonight's text, we're going to see that they're going to find out even though they were lied to by the Gibeonites, and even though they fell into the trap of believing them, the consequences are still going to be dealing with it in tonight's text. But at the same time, in the midst of those consequences, God's going to do a great work. And praise the Lord for His grace. Again, God's desire is that He would do a work in everybody's life. So here's the title of the message. It's The Sun Stood Still. And here's the question I would ask you. We're going to look at the chapter over the next two times we meet. Tonight and then two weeks from now, because next week Pottersfield will be here. We're only going to look at the first 15 verses tonight. And here's what I titled the first half. Where do you turn in times of difficulty? Where do you turn in times of difficulty? And here's three things we're going to see in tonight's text. To worldly resources. The king's going to call for armies to help them. To a godly intercessor, as the Gibeonites call to Joshua, or directly to the Lord, as Joshua calls to the Lord. And as we go through the chapter, this week and next, you're going to see Jesus all over this chapter, just like you do in every Old Testament chapter in the Bible. But there's some awesome stuff. Some of it we won't get to till next week, but I'll tell you what, the Bible just flat out rocks. Amen? And I love when I see Jesus in every page of the Old Testament. So let's begin in verse 1. Where do you turn in times of difficulty, times of great difficulty, beginning with to worldly resources? A king calls for other armies. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zadok. Adonai. Adonai Zadok. That name means Lord of Righteousness. Now, often in the Bible, people live up to their name. But not always. This guy is not always. If anything, this guy is the antithesis of his name. And as we're going to see in this chapter, I believe he is a type of the Antichrist. Because he will appear, his name appears that he is a righteous man, but he is a godless man. Won't the Antichrist dupe people by them thinking he's a religiously, a man who brings peace, a man who solves all problems? And so this man's name, Adonai Zedek, means the Lord of Righteousness. 
This false Lord of righteousness is a representation of the Antichrist set against Joshua, who is a representation of whom? Of Jesus. Joshua. Yahshua. Jesus. Same name. Okay? And so we have Joshua, representation of Christ, and Adonai Zedek, a, a representation of the Antichrist. Keep that in mind as we go through the chapter. It says, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Maybe you didn't know that. There was a king of Jerusalem before the Israelites ever settled there. In anticipation of them being there. Heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. So word gets back to Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, that the Israelites have come in, and word had no doubt come to them because everybody else knew about the Red Sea crossing. They knew about them wiping out Egypt. They knew about Sihon and Og. They knew about them crossing over the Jordan. He knows about them wiping out Jericho. They did a number on Ai. And now he's heard that the Gibeonites, as we're going to see in the next verse, a mighty army have joined Israel. And Adonai Zedek says, uh-oh, we got to do something here. This army is already wiping out the greatest fortresses in the land. They've got the most mighty army who has now joined with them. We're in big trouble. We've got to do something. Now, Adonai Zedek knows that something needs to be done, so where does he turn? It's one of the options that you and I have. Where should we turn when we're faced with a massive enemy, a difficulty in life, struggling in our finances, a relationship that's falling apart, struggling at work, whatever it might be? Where are you going to turn? Turn to your worldly strength. Well, that's what Adonai Zedek did. Look what it says in verse 2. And they feared greatly, having heard of Israel's rapid conquest, again of Jericho and its king, and Ai and its king, and as the king, he noticed he says, and its king. He knows those kings died. And he's a king. And he knows if they come, I'm done. And so he has to do something in response. But what's he going to do? He fears greatly. I want you to know something. That even though the enemy may fear greatly, it doesn't mean that the enemy is going to retreat or back up or quit. There's not a doubt in my mind that Satan is scared spitless of God. Is that a fact or not? What happens when Jesus shows up around the demons? Oh, right? What do they do? They flee and they tremble, Right? And so the same is true here. Satan is scared spitless of, the, of God. But at the same time, I often think of him like a cornered you know, animal that knows it's going to die. He's going to go down swinging. Got him cornered. He's, oh, he's scared to death of you, but he's going to swing until he dies, right? And that's the enemy that we, ser- that we fight, not serve. Help me, Lord. But that's the enemy that we fight. And so he fears greatly, but he doesn't bow to the Lord. He doesn't even come and try to make a treaty. Instead, he says, we got to get together and somehow fight this army before they overwhelm us. And though they feared greatly the enemies, uh, these enemies of Israel, like our spiritual enemies, are not going to retreat or give up, but are going to go into attack mode with even greater boldness. Note he says here, feared greatly because of Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. You would have never thought that looking at the last chapter, would you? The Gibeonites showed up with old tore-up clothes and you know, sandals that they made look old and moldy bread, and were trying to get over on Israel. They didn't show up like they were mighty, did they? 
They showed up in humility in hopes that somehow they could be on Israel's side. This is a sign of God working in someone's heart. Where they don't trust in their might, they don't trust in their physical strength, but they come in humility. Again, the Gibeonites, what they did was wrong. But at the same time, I certainly understand what they did much more than I understand what Israel did. The Gibeonites understood, we're done. We have to do something or we're going to die. And they came and said, we'll be your servants. Whereas Israel didn't seek the Lord and entered into this joint venture and covenant with them. Look at verse 3. So how does Adonai Zadok respond, finding out this army's coming in, i got to do something? Therefore, Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem... Now let me say this. There's another Zadok. Melchizedek, right? Adonai Zadok, Melchizedek. Adonai Zadok means Lord of, Lord of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Who's Melchizedek? Jesus. Period. Absolute fact. Okay. Who receives worship but him? Who receives tithes and offerings but the Lord? Nobody. But Melchizedek did. And the Bible says that he has no genealogy and he shows up on the scene. It says in Genesis, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. They gave tithes to this man. Now, their names are similar, but they're exactly the opposite of each other. Because Melchizedek came to bless Abraham and his descendants, and Adonizedek comes to destroy the children of Israel. The Christ and the Antichrist. Don't be fooled by somebody's name, always. A worldly king who came out to destroy the descendants of the children of Israel. And this is an example how far they've fallen away from the true and living God and the reason why this judgment is going to come. Understand something. When you read in the Bible, how many people struggle? You read in the Bible and you see God wiping out entire countries. How many struggle with that? Let me explain to you why. They, it never happens until there's rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. God is merciful. He's gracious. But His mercy at some point will end. At some point, righteous judgment is going to come. And so Adonai Zedek, his whole heart is, let's gather together and go fight these guys. Look what happens. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Now, the Gibeonites, who were they again? They were the pagans who were in the land who had showed up and had duped Israel into making a covenant with them. But from a spiritual sense, from a way that we can look at it today, they came and humbled themselves before God and became servants of the Lord. Now what's interesting is that the enemy now is going to attack, but who do they go after? They don't go after Israel, they go after the Gibeonites. You know, Satan will often try to attack us at our weakest point. 
Amen? You know what? Not, this is not being arrogant, it's just a fact. I've never struggled with drugs or alcohol in my life. You could put 400 pounds of cocaine in my driveway and leave it there for a year. Not going to be a temptation for me. I might try to ski down it or something, but I'm not. So Satan doesn't tempt me with drugs. But I have other weaknesses like all men do. And he'll tempt you where you're weak, right? Because he knows this is an area where he could fall. Pride, yeah, I get him with pride. Yeah, I get him with this. But you know what? There's certain areas where the struggle's not there. Now, we need to stay desperate even in those areas because we can fall there too, amen? But the point is that they go after the weak spot. Well, man, if we go straight against Israel, you know, their God's definitely going to smoke us. So let's go after the Gibeonites first. And then if we kill them, we'll make sure that nobody else joins with Israel. Did you hear about Gibeon? They joined up with Israel. And you hear what happened? The five kings got together and killed them all. So let's scare anybody else from getting aligned with the God of Israel. It's interesting. The Gibeonites, again, came, surrendered themselves to be servants of God. And what happens almost immediately? They get attacked by the enemy. Isn't that what happens to Christians? You come and surrender your life to the Lord. You're a new creation in Christ. When I pray with somebody, when they accept the Lord, I always tell them, guess what? There's all the angels in heaven are rejoicing and Satan is ticked. Amen? And so guess what? You need to be pursuing God and surround yourself with godly fellowship because the enemy is going to be waiting for you to tempt you and to draw you away and to cause you to stumble and cause you to question your faith because if you've truly been born again, he can't keep you out of heaven. But the last thing he wants you to do is to be an on-fire Christian. So if he can't take you to hell with him, he wants to make you lukewarm or cold. So get ready. Well, Gibeon, they've aligned with Israel and the enemy right in there behind them. Let's go after them. Let's make them stumble. Let's attack them. The more and more we surrender to the Lord, know that the battle will only intensify, you guys. The more you surrender to God, the greater a problem you are for the enemy. If you think that the battles you face are going to get easier in time, think again. You know, I love talking to guys who are going into ministry. And they've got this idea that, well, now that I'm going to be full-time, I'm going to have more time in the Word, and be able to minister more, and man, things are going to be so much smoother. Oh. I said, get ready to, I tell them, get ready to have people talk about your wife, and talk about your kids, and talk about you behind your back, and have roast pastor after, after church at lunch every week, and, you know, and slam you, and, you know, and if you're really, if you're, God's really using you, they'll have internet sites to rip you, and, you know, just get ready. Because the more God uses you, the more the enemy wants to attack you, Amen. And so, here's the point. The battle's not going to get easier as we walk closer to God. It's only going to get more treacherous. If you're a person who's growing in the Lord and beginning to acquire more and more of the promised land, all that God has for you, you're going to find the battle only gets worse. The more you grow in the Lord, the more useful you are to Him, the more the enemy will want to destroy you. Now, if you stay lukewarm and you feel content to sit on the sidelines, you'll find the battle isn't bad at all. When people say to me, I haven't gone through any trials in years, I'm like, You must not be sharing your faith, reading your Bible, doing anything for God. Because if you are, and again, I don't want a martyr complex either, amen? I'm just suffering for God. No, sometimes you're suffering because you're a jerk. (laughs) I've had people say, oh yeah, I'm just suffering. for." No, you're not. You're being a jerk, man. That's why you're suffering. Maybe some of that suffering's coming from God, amen? 
knock it off. Be loving, be kind, be gracious. But again, you're going to be miserable if you walk lukewarm too because you will not be doing what God's called you to do. You may have tasted it, but you're not walking in it. And if it starts off, you decide you want to get serious for the Lord, you're going to begin to make stands in your life that aren't pleasing, and you know what? Get ready. Here comes the battle. And again, understand that God's got a great plan for every one of us. And as you begin to grow in the Lord and you develop your own ministry of sorts, it could be working in the coffee ministry. It could be setting up chairs on Sunday, working in the Sunday school. It's amazing. I will talk to people that haven't been sick in five years and, and, and they're on a schedule every third Sunday and they wake up every third Sunday violently ill. Where do you think that's coming from? Sometimes we give Satan too much credit. But you know what? Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. Amen? And so Adonai Zedek, he turns to the world for answers. He's going to come against Gibeon. And the Gibeonites, here they are. They've just aligned themselves with Israel. And the people that used to be their allies are now their enemies. The guys they used to hang with now want to destroy them. Does that sound familiar? When you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says if you're a friend of God, you'll be an enemy of the world. And you start serving the Lord, the people that used to hang with you won't want anything to do with you. Dude, you used to be fun. What's wrong with you? Talking about Jesus all the time. Get over it already. What are you, some kind of Jesus freak? I got an answer for that. Yes. Who better to be a freak for, amen? You're a religious fanatic all day long. Amen? And so understand that as you step out of ministry, the enemy is going to be right there waiting for you. You find out the more that you want God to use you, you open up your house to be used for the couple's ministry. You open up your home. You open up, uh, you're doing a ministry. Get ready. When the opposition comes, be ready for it. Amen? I want to exhort all of you. You're serving at this church, get ready. Here it comes. You're praying about serving more? Get ready. And just know that, that as, as Manny always says, man, you're blessed. You're being attacked? Oh, you're blessed. God must be using you, bro. Man, you're blessed. Satan's resources are limited and he's using some of it on you? Wow. God must be using you. We need to have that same heart. Don't be surprised when you step out and face opposition. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may desire. So the enemy's encamped around Gibeon. These guys have just lined up with Israel. They look up, and here's five kingdoms coming against them. All lined up. Notice, five kings. I think that's interesting. The kings are coming together. The enemy encamped around about them. Where do you turn in times of difficulty? Well, Adonai Zedek turned to other men, mounted up an army, and is going to go try to attack God's people. But start with the Gibeonites. Now, where do we turn in times of difficulty? How about the Gibeonites who are going to turn to a godly intercessor? Look at verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants... Come up to us quickly, save us, help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell on the mountains have gathered together against us. Now the Gibeonites quickly turn where? To God's people. To Joshua. Hey, 
Here comes the enemy, and they didn't say, well, they got five kingdoms. You know, we're pretty yoked because we're the mighty men with the royal city. And we get a few more friends on our side. We'll throw down with these guys, and let's see who wins. That's not what they did. They turned and called out to Joshua. Now, I want you to know something here. That the covenant that they made was not that the children of Israel would protect them. Nowhere does it say that. Here was the covenant. We won't kill you. That was the covenant. We won't kill you. You can be our servants. You can fetch our water. You can cut our wood, and we won't kill you. Okay, sounds good for us. Right? We'll be your servant. That was the program. And the Gibeonites said, sign us up, because at least we won't die. And we know your God's awesome, and we don't want to mess with your God, so we're on your side. Now, Joshua could have said, now, God, I, didn't pro- I promised not to kill him, but if those guys kill him, I got one less problem. I wasn't supposed to be married to that guy anyway, so if a bus hits him, so be it. I mean, I blew it, but I promised to stay married till death do us part. And death is an opportunity for an out for me. He needs a kidney. I've only, oh, well, sorry. And sometimes that's the, the tack that people take. Well, I, made a, I blew it. I made a commitment. But I'm only going to do what I have to do and nothing more. It's all I'm going to do. I have people ask me that in marriage counseling. What's the minimum I have to do? What's the least I, well, I married an unbeliever, so what's the least I have to do? That's never God's heart, amen? So the Gibeonites turn and they talk to Joshua, and again, Joshua could have said, well, now Joshua's name means Yeshua, and that means Jehovah is salvation. And guess what? When we've totally blown it, we're outside of God's will. Guess who we ought to be turning to? Jesus. Amen? We need to come to the Lord, our intercessor between God and man. And so the Gibeonites turn to Joshua and they cry out for help. And Joshua is not under any obligation to help them. You know what? Would it be that lost sinners would realize what the Gibeonites understand? When we're in trouble, turn to the Lord. When the Gibeonites found themselves in danger, they believed Joshua's promise and they called on him for help. And that's what God's people need to do when they find themselves facing the battles of this life. The Gibeonites turned the whole whole burden over to Joshua and trusted him to keep his word. Okay, Joshua, we have a covenant with you. And I love Joshua's response. Look at verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Joshua didn't say, I don't see that in my contract. I said, I won't kill you. I never said I would protect you. Too bad. I'm out of the deal. I can can forget that I ever made an alliance with you. I can move on with my life now, being freed of my burden of you. Again, I can't tell how many marriage counseling sessions I've had just like that. Well, he committed adultery. I can get out now. Is it the least that we should do? Is it the very least that we should do in the commitments we've made? Is it the least? Or should we go above and beyond and do it to our utmost? To the utmost. You're married to an unbeliever. You'd be so on fire for God that they want to know that Jesus is in you. Amen? 
not seeing you whine and moan and complain about how, man, I wish I was married to a Christian. You act like that, they're going to say, I wish I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Amen? Let them see Jesus in us, not murmuring and complaining. And Joshua and Israel went above and beyond the vow they had made. Didn't just do the least amount required. Again, not just keep our promises, but keep them with excellence as unto the Lord. Don't take the easy way out. Don't bail out, work it out. Amen? Don't run away, don't quit, don't give up. Fix it. Can I tell you something? You leave the situation you're in, you're going to find yourself right back there again with somebody else. It's a fact. Because if you won't get right with God in the situation you're in, you're going to take that same problem with you wherever you go. So get right with the Lord, amen? Be restored into a right place with Him. Now, He ascended from Gilgal. This is not a, big, this is not a minor thing. It was 25 miles away, straight uphill. Ascending 3,000 feet, 25 miles away, this is going above and beyond, isn't it? It'd be so much easier to go, I'm kind of tired. We just took care of AI, we did, you know, come on. I'm going to chill for a while. I, you know, I'm too tired to serve in the children's ministry. I don't want to climb up that hill. I mean, Sunday's my only day to sleep in. How many have ever said that? Don't bear false witness. But Sunday's my day. That's when I sleep in. Church should be at 1 o'clock. I've had people tell me that. You should make church at 1, Pastor Dave. That would be great. Have lunch before church. Have the agape feast and church after it. So he ascends from Gilgal, 25 miles away, through mountainous terrain. Joshua, a type of Christ. Again, though the Gibeonites were undeserving deceivers, Joshua would come to the rescue just as Jesus did for this room full of undeserving deceivers. Amen? He came through for us and we didn't deserve it. He's such a faithful and incredible God. Where do you turn in times of difficulty? Do you turn to the world? Do you turn to the intercessor? And in this case, Joshua, do we turn to the Lord? Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Do not fear them. This is a command, by the way. He's not saying do not fear them would be a good idea. He says do not fear them. The Bible tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen? Did he have a reason to fear? Five kings. This new world order of kings. Gathering up. Coming against Israel. Coming first against Gid, the Gibeonites. Israel would be next. He had a reason to fear. The mightiest army he would have ever faced. But God says don't fear. You know what? We can cripple our ability to fight God's battles because of fear. You look what he says in the second half of that verse. I have delivered them into your hand. When God commands you not to fear, he also couples it with a promise. He says, don't fear. I already dist- I've already wiped them out. Don't fear. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? We don't need to be afraid because the spirit of the living God lives within us. I've, com- I've delivered them into your hand. The command is coupled with the promise and we can obey God's commands to not fear because we have the promise of victory. 
We must see fear for what it is. You know what fear is? Here's a better word for it. Unbelief. Fear is unbelief. Why are we afraid? Because we don't believe what God promised. God promised, but I just don't believe it. That's why I'm afraid. God said, I'm going to give you the land. Oh, there's giants there. We can't go. I, no, that ain't going to work. I, no way. I promise. Doesn't matter. I don't, I'm not seeing it, so I'm just not doing it. And that's what fear is. Fear is unbelief. An unwillingness to believe what God has promised. So how does Joshua respond? The Lord says to him, Do not fear. I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man shall stand against you. Look what Joshua does. Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So, God has a command. God has a calling. And God is going to bring the victory with or without us. But at the same time, when God calls us, He wants us to respond. Amen? God has a calling. God has a victory. The battle's been won. But He wants you to be a part of it. And I love Joshua's response. This is why this is a man God can use. Because Joshua, having the assurance of God's promise, didn't sit back to wait and watch God do it. He went out with great effort to participate in the work of God. This was hard work. Up th- over 3,300 feet, a distance of 25 miles, probably took him 10 to 12 hours of hard marching all night long. Would have been a lot easier to stay home and get rid of my problem with the Gibeonites. A lot harder to get up and say, yes, Lord, you've promised, I trust you. God does his work, but he draws us into working with him. Often God wants to see our initiative, our willingness to partner with him before he does what only he can do. Without him, I can do nothing. and Without me, he won't do anything through me. He won't use me if I'm not willing. Amen? He wants me to be available. This is not the idea, again, that God helps those who help themselves, but God wants us to be a partner with Him and say, Lord, what are you doing? I want to be involved in that. Lord, let me get right behind you, Lord, and follow you with my whole heart. And Joshua was such a man. Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. He didn't say, this is my morning to sleep in. He didn't say, but I'm really tired, Lord. I don't have time. He said, yes, Lord. Amen? Yes, Lord. What do you want to do with me? Verse 10. So the Lord... Now watch this. You, don't mess with our God. Let me just tell you that. Look at verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. So he... What does it say there? He routed them, he killed them, he chased them, he struck them, and he slaughtered them. I think they're dead. Don't mess with God. Amen? Our God is awesome. He's a great and awesome God. And these king, this group of kings came together, and you know, this new world order of kings thought they were going to come against God. That's a big mistake. And so the Lord routed them. The word routed means drove, destroyed, broke, and crushed. He killed them, slew, punished, smote, with a great slaughter. Not a small slaughter, a great slaughter. Beaten, blown, plague, wound. That's what a word means. Chased them, put them to flight, hunted them, persecuted them, pursued them. And then it says, struck them down, punished them, slayed them, smite them. The Lord routed, killed, chased, struck, slaughtered. 
this new world order of worldly kings. Guess what? There's another new world order of worldly kings coming, isn't there? And they're going to try to fight God too. And it's going to be worse than this one. And we get a preview of it in verse 11. Because this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the end times. There is no escape from God's divine judgment. Look at verse 11. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent from Beth Horan that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. In Revelation 16, during the tribulation, what's going to happen? Hailstones, 120 pounds, are going to fall from the sky. Flaming hailstones. Where do you, where do you hide from a 120-pound hailstone? Nowhere. Now we see in the text that they do hide one place in caves. And interestingly enough, guess where these guys are going to hide? Again, a foreshadowing of that which is to come. The Bible, Jesus all over it. We're going to see next week, these same kings are going to be hung on trees. We're going to see they're put in caves and stones rolled in front of them. What does that sound like? Hung on a tree, put in a cave, stone rolled over in front of them. But you know what? They're going to die in the caves, and our Savior is a risen and living Savior who came out of the cave. Amen? Again, Jesus on every page. Now, what's interesting about this is these stones are falling... And it says there, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. You want to talk about a miracle. These hailstones fell from the sky and killed only the enemy. God's people weren't touched. Because God has not appointed us unto wrath. Amen? You might disagree with me and you'd be wrong. But I say that half joking, but not really. Here's the thing. We're not going to be here for the tribulation. God is going to deliver us out. He has not appointed us unto wrath. And he's going to snatch us up. And you know what? God's not going to pour out wrath on his kids. He's just not going to. He's delivering us first. And here's a picture of it, that the only people that died from these stones were the enemy. And the only people that are going to be wiped out during the tribulation at the hands of God are God's enemies. Not the, not the children that he's already raptured up into heaven. You know what's interesting? The Canaanites worshipped nature. And here they are getting hailed on. And all hail broke loose, didn't it? And they didn't have a chance in hail of surviving. I'm sorry. You know these youth pastors, they just die hard, you know what? So God's work's going to be done with or without our help because less people died at the sword than people that died from the hailstones. Which means God could have taken care of them all. But God allowed them to have a part because God wanted to use them in His ministry, in His work. And God can do it all without us. He could open up the sky and just share the gospel with everybody, couldn't He? But God desires to use us. He lets us be tools in the hands of the Master. If you thought that was miraculous, let's read the next couple of verses. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ahijan. Ahijalon. Now, let me ask you a question. That's a pretty radical request, isn't it? 
Sun stands still. I'm faithless because I don't think I'd be doing that. Especially not in front of other people. You know what? This shows an incredible amount of faith. But notice how it starts. In verse 8, it says that Joshua believed God's word. In verse 9, he responded to God's word by doing his best. He went out immediately and suddenly in obedience to God's word. In verse 12, he speaks to the Lord. And now at the end of verse 12, he's speaking with great faith in front of the entire congregation. This just didn't happen overnight. And I believe that the reason we don't see as much of the miraculous today in those areas, in those ways, is because we don't have the same type of faith. Now, this is something that is abused. I want to make sure I make this really clear. I'm not talking about the faith in faith, and you've got to have more faith, and oh, you conjure it up. That's not what I'm talking about. That's abuse. You see it on TV. It's, that's not from God. I'm talking about the faith that comes when you're walking so close to the Lord, you can hear Him whisper. You know His heart. You can hear the beat of His heart, and now you simply respond by faith in what God desires to do. You know what's interesting? I go to India every year, as you guys know. We support missionaries there. And every year I go, I hear first-hand accounts of people being raised from the dead. I've never been anywhere near anybody getting raised from the dead over here. But I'm amazed how many people have been healed. I'll ask a guy, so how did you get saved? This is an actual pastor that I met. How did you get saved? I love their testimonies. They live in the midst of Hinduism. 98% Hinduism. Idols everywhere. You drive down the street, there's a 75-foot-tall monkey on the side of the road, and people are worshiping it. It's like something out of the Old Testament. And I said, how did you get saved? He said, I was at my house and my mom died and we were having a funeral. We're about to set her body on fire because that's what we do in our tradition. And we've got her body up there and we're about to set it on fire. She's been dead for about two and a half days. We're all weeping and we're wailing and this man comes walking in we've never seen before. He goes over and lays his hand on my mom and prays for her and she gets up. My whole family got saved. I said, well, I guess so. That would get my attention. And he said, all my brothers, all my sisters are in ministry now, and my mom lived another 30 years. Now, that's faith. Can I tell you something? Have, and again, not some weird thing, but I know there have been times in my life where I felt like the Lord's telling me to tell somebody something, but because I'm afraid that I'll be wrong, I don't say anything. Anybody else ever done that besides me? I'm playing golf with a guy a few years ago. Guy I've been sharing my faith with, sharing my faith with, sharing my faith with, never wanted to hear it until I found out his dad had cancer. I walked by his cubicle back when I was still working full time. He's weeping at his desk. And I said, bro, how's it going? He said, man, I just found out my dad's dying. They were giving him like a month to live. His dad lived in England. And I said, would it be all right if I prayed for your dad? And for the first time I saw this guy soften, he said, would you? I said, absolutely. I said, Mark, I'm only going to ask you one thing, though. If I pray for your dad and he gets healed, that you give credit where credit's due. He said, you got it. And so about three weeks later, I had my whole, I was youth pastor time, had the whole youth group praying for him, had our prayer chain praying for him, everybody's praying for him. We're playing golf, and we're on a tee box, and I'm sitting at the thing, and I feel like the Lord's telling me, and I didn't hear an audible voice or anything, tell Mark I'm going to heal his dad. What if I'm wrong? What if, you're, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm thinking that? What if I made that up? What if I tell him he'll never believe after that? He'll mock me forever. He already mocks me anyway. I can't tell him that, Lord. How do I know this is real? 
Tell him I'm going to heal his death. I can, no, I can't do that. And I didn't. I didn't tell him. Why? I wimped out. I was faithless. I wasn't hell, claiming a Cadillac in the name of Jesus. That's not what I was doing. That's not the faith I'm talking about. I'm talking about the faith when God moves on your heart as you're walking in intimacy with him to say, Lord, I believe this. And I, you know what? I'm going to ask you because I know this is your will, not mine. Amen? Not give me, give me, give me, but Lord, your will be done. You know what? Three days later, I go into the office and this guy who shows no emotion comes up and hugs me and he's weeping. He said, you're never going to believe this. My dad went to the doctor. No more cancer. And then, of course, I tried to say, well, you know, God was trying to tell me to tell you that at the tea box three days. <laughs> and the sad part is the guy still didn't get saved. He still didn't give his life to the Lord. Still didn't believe. Still wanted to give the credit somewhere else. But again, my prayer is constantly, Lord, may I be walking so close to you that I would have that kind of faith like Joshua to say, son, stand still. To go up and pray for somebody. You know, something similar to that happened when I was in India a couple years ago. A guy got hit by a car, and he was in the middle of the street laying on the ground. And I felt like, man, we should get out there and go lay hands on him. I think God can heal him. And we wimped out again. I wimped out again. So your pastor's a faithless man too, just like all of us. Amen? So the point I'm making is, does God still want to work that way through his servants today? Does he still want us to... But again, how are we going to know his heart? To spend time in his presence. To spend time seeking His face. To say, yes, Lord. To have that intimate fellowship with God so that we might respond. Verse 13. So the son stood still. It's one thing to say, son, stand still. It's another thing when it happens. Amen? It's another thing to pray for someone to be raised from the dead. It's another thing when they sit up. Now, Scientists have always struggled with this. They go, well, this is impossible. And first of all, the sun doesn't move. The planet moves around the sun. (laughs) Right? But the whole universe is moving anyway. But we call it sunrise and sunset, but the sun's not setting. The earth's moving, right? But the point I'm making is, can God make the sun stand still? You better believe it. He's God. And it kills me when people try to explain it away. Well, what really happened here was... God allowed them to do two days' work in one day, so it was like the sun stood still. That's not what it says. What does the Bible say? The sun stood still. So what happened? The sun stood still. Quit trying to explain it away and, oh, no, but that really means... No, it doesn't. It means what it says. The Bible says the sun stood still, so the sun stood still. And how do we know that? Look what it says. And the moon stopped. Sun stopped, moon stopped. Man, it's awesome. And then it says... Till the people had revenge upon their enemies. So the sun stopped, it stayed light, and they went out because of the cover of brightness of day. At dark, they could have gotten away. God allowed the sun to stay up. Why? So they could take vengeance on those who were attacking Gibeon. And Gibeon was only a result of the disobedience of God's people to align themselves with people in the land that they never should have. This miracle took place in the midst of their disobedience. They chose to obey now, but it was fruit of their disobedience that this miracle took place. Do you see how God is a faithful God? You marry an unbeliever, guess what? God just might bring him to Christ. Amen? That unsaved man you marry may end up being a pastor one day, and all your kids on fire for God. Because you know what? Our God is a gracious God, even in the midst of our disobedience. 
That doesn't mean we should disobey, but it means that we can trust God, even in the midst of our disobedience, to do above and beyond what we think. Verse, last couple of verses. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Book of Jasher was a, the book means upright or righteous. This is thought to be a Hebrew literary book of songs written to honor the accomplishments of Israel's leaders. It's no longer in existence. People say, oh, no longer in existence. Oh, we lost a book. No, we didn't, because here's the thing. God who put the stars in the sky is the same God who kept our Bible together. Believe that? Absolutely. And so he's the divine editor. And if that book's not around, it's because we don't need it anymore. Amen? So there's a reference to it here. Verse 14. And there has been no day like that before it or after it. So guess what? This isn't doing two works, two days work in one day. Because it said there's been no day like it before or after. You know why? Because the sun stood still. That the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord heeded the voice of a man. As his prayer was in agreement with God's plan to fight for Israel, God's answer to Joshua's prayer enabled Israel to claim the victory. The reason, again, we don't see more of this happening today is we don't have the intimate walk with God that we should. I'm speaking for myself, too. Amen? Man, I want... I, how many of you have been there? Where you're so close to the Lord, you can hear Him whisper. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You're right. And then you get busy about your work and things happen and you look up and you're not as close to God as you used to be and who moved? We did, Amen? God's still there. We move away. We get busy. May we get back there again. May we come to the place where we'll be able to pray for the sick and pray for the lame because we've heard from God. God says, I want to do this. Not some show to bring praise to men, but to honor and glorify God. Amen? That's what should be happening. Last verse. Then Joshua returned all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So in closing... The sun stood still. Where do you turn in times of great difficulty? Do you turn to your worldly resources like the kings who called out for their armies? How did that work out? How did that work out for them? Not too good. Killed, slain, slaughtered, great slaughter, right? Hailstones falling from the sky, killing only them and not their enemy. Don't turn to the world. To the godly intercessor, the Gibeonites called to Joshua. Who's our intercessor today? Jesus Christ. He's interceding on behalf of man and calling directly to the Lord. Joshua calls to the Lord. God's response to those who turn to him by faith. God desires to encourage you, to strengthen you, to bless you, to use you. If you've blown it in the past, you can repent, get right with God, and God can use you in a mighty way from this day forward. Amen? And if you put yourself in a difficult situation because you're outside of God's will, don't bail out, work it out, honor God in the midst of it, and watch God work in spite of it. Amen? As he did here with the children of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement for all of us where we've made mistakes in the past. We've made them even today, Lord. That, Father, you can take where we've blown it and use it for your glory. Father, help us to be like Joshua, that when we hear your voice to respond in obedience, Lord, not to look for the easy way out, not to look for the least amount we can do, but say, yes, Lord. And Lord, serve you with our whole heart. Father, I pray for each of us, Lord, for the calling you've placed upon our lives, that we would not walk in a spirit of fear, a spirit of unbelief, but Lord, we would trust your word and trust your promises and be faithful to the calling you've placed upon our lives. Lord, we love you, we praise you, May we be tools in your hands. May we walk in such intimate fellowship with you, Lord, that we can hear you whisper. 
We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song. It's our confession, Lord.